Welcome to another episode of Search News You Can Use with me, Dr. Marie Haynes. In this episode, we're going to talk about maybe a small Google update, nothing to get too excited about. Uh, we're going to mention a little bit about web stories. I think we need to be paying more attention to web stories. Uh, they're becoming a bigger thing, and so I'm going to give you my thoughts on that. Um, Martin Split and Eric Enge had a fantastic talk on page speed, so I'm going to share some of the most important things that we learned from that talk. We'll talk about uh, important stuff if you have a website that allows user-generated content, some things that you need to know. And we've got some great questions for Q&A. One question is how to trim down a massive disavow file. This is an issue that we've seen in several cases, so I'll give you my thoughts on that gargantuan task that uh, I, I don't envy you when you have to tackle that because we've, we've done it lots of times and it's a, it's a challenge for sure. And also another question in q and on whether you should be putting dates on your blog posts and articles. I think most of you know the answer to this, but it's still a, a thing that comes up in terms of discussion and SEOs. So I'll give my thoughts on that as well. This is episode number 143 of search news you can use. And as always, you can find the print version that's not exactly the same as what I'm saying here. Uh, but this version of what I'm saying, uh, along with a lot more at mariehaines.com slash newsletter. We have two versions of our newsletter. And later on in this podcast, I'm going to share with you a little bit about the paid version of newsletter and give you some thoughts as to why you might want to upgrade to paid. Uh, but even if you don't want to be a paid member of newsletter, there's tons in the free version, which again, mariehaines.com slash newsletter. Let's start off by talking about, as we always do, algorithm updates. Um, there was something that happened on July 23rd of 2020. Uh, we had several sites that saw this very typical bump up that we tend to see uh, at the start of Google doing something good in terms of uh, algorithms that reward quality. Um, a couple of these sites are sites that have been working on improving many, many aspects of quality based on our advice. Uh, but we also had a couple of websites that were down a little bit in traffic as well. Um, not dramatically though. Uh, most of the sites that were down are medical sites. Uh, I'm not saying that Google released anything massive in terms of medical sites because at this point uh, it's really very small. Normally when we see an update that's worthy of us uh, digging in and doing a big investigation on, we're seeing quite a few sites across our profile of sites that we've reviewed over the years uh, that are seeing changes. And we're also seeing usually way more chatter than we see uh, with this July 23rd update. So at this point, I'm going to call this some type of a blip. Maybe Google made some changes, uh, very minor changes to their algorithms. All of the uh, weather tracking tools like MozCast and SEMrush sensor, they're showing something again on this date. Uh, and if we see that there is more information coming out uh, showing that more people are affected, then yes, we'll do uh, further investigation into this. If you were affected by this July 23rd update and it was significant, I'd love for you to just let me know. You can tweet at me at Marie underscore Haynes. And uh, I can't guarantee that I'll look into your specific uh, situation. But if enough people tweet at me, then it gives me more evidence to say, all right, maybe we need to be looking into this a little more uh, deeply. Um, so thank you, those of you who keep me up to date with uh, what's happening with your uh, your websites. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about web stories. So Google announced this week that there's a new performance report in Google Search Console. And uh, what it's called now, um, Google says, this new feature allows webmasters to check whether their intended AMP stories content is being recognized as a web story by Google. Uh, and, you know, a lot of you who are listening to this are probably the same as me, saying like, ooh, this sounds like something interesting, but it's AMP. And I'm, I don't have any AMP on my site. And really, should I be paying attention to this? And I would say we, we can't ignore AMP. Um, web stories are just another version of AMP pages, and uh, they are uh, starting to rank really well. Uh, and I would really, really urge you, I mean, Google's put this into Google Search Console. It's something they want us to be measuring. Um, I know Glenn Gabe put out a web story uh, on one of his uh, articles, and it did really, really well. To me, web stories seems to be a way to win free real estate right now in the search results. Uh, I wish I had the time. I have several clients that I'd love to just sit down and play around with. Uh, WordPress apparently has uh, plugins that make it really, really easy to make a web story. And I'd love to sit down and try this out. I, I might do this for one of my own sites, uh, perhaps in the next couple of weeks, because it seems that if you can produce good content, uh, what happens in this web story is it's very, basically something that uh, it loads very fast for users. And it explains something in just a few pages that you can swipe through. Uh, and so if you have a topic that needs explanation, then it can be something that allows you to rank really, really well because web stories are, uh, again, they're ranking well, especially on mobile. So um, that's something we're going to look a little bit more into. I think it's really interesting that uh, Google has made this a part of Google Search Console. It's definitely something that they want us to focus on. And I really do think uh, that this will be something that really takes off. Again, I, I've said this before, if you're sitting there at home and you're, uh, you know, a, a solo consultant, or maybe you're working for an agency and you're thinking of going out on your own, and you've got a little bit of knowledge in terms of uh, understanding AMP and HTML and CSS and, and the basics of putting together a web story, there's lots of room for people to emerge as the leader in terms of web stories. And I would urge you to forget the, um, the you know, there was some good discussion on Twitter this week about imposter syndrome. Uh, so many of you, I think, are sitting there going, well, I can't be the leader in that. I mean, what about so-and-so? They know way more than I do on this topic. And I'll tell you, that's how, uh, that's why you're listening to me today, because uh, back in the day when Google started handing out a lot of penalties, there really was nobody who had emerged as an expert in terms of Google penalties. And I don't think I set out to say, uh, you know, I'm going to be known as an expert. When people talk about Google penalties, they also mention Marie Haynes, but it happened. And I think that that could happen for somebody out there who's listening to this podcast in terms of web stories. Uh, I wish I could be that person. Maybe I can encourage somebody on my team to, to be the person who's the expert on web stories. I think we've got enough on our plates right now though. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe that's you. Maybe I would like to inspire somebody to uh, put out more content um, to make it easy to understand how to do web stories. Uh, and I bet you, you would do really, really well if you're thinking of, of doing that kind of thing. 
Let's talk about, um, there was a new edition of SEO Mythbusting with Martin Split from Google, and he sat down with Eric Enge from Proficient Digital, and they had a fantastic talk. I would really encourage you, if you have time, to watch this video. Uh, there's so much to be learned from it. In our newsletter, uh, again, this is episode number 143, we have summarized what we thought were the most important parts of this video. Uh, I'll share a few of them with you here. Um, one thing to know is that, uh, and so this whole discussion was on page speed. Google came out years ago, a few years ago, and they told us that page speed is a ranking factor. They did the same thing just recently when they announced the core web vitals. They said, hey, coming up in the future, core web vitals and your scores on these are going to be a ranking factor. They don't do this very often. The other time when I can recall Google coming out and saying, hey, this is a ranking factor, uh, was when um, they were talking about sites switching to HTTPS. That if you were HTTP and your competitor was HTTPS, this would give your competitor an advantage over you. Page speed is something else that Google has said, look, this is a ranking factor. But then they came out and said it's very tiny. And what a lot of people don't realize is that page speed is essentially a tiebreaker. If I'm competing against you and your website uh, is equally as good as mine, and according to Google, they might as well rank either of us because we're both amazing, but your website loads significantly faster than mine, then maybe you will rank above me. Uh, so one thing it's important to know is that page speed in Google's algorithms, while it is a ranking factor, it's more of a tiebreaker. It's not something where you can say, look, my page has a 95 score on page speed insights or, or the uh, uh, lighthouse score. And you have a 85, an 85, uh, and therefore I must be ranked above you. Um, you know, Google takes many, many things into account. And I believe that 85 is still acceptable in terms of speed. It's still in the green in terms of uh, the lighthouse score. Um, and so if you have, like, again, if you have 85 and I have 95 or vice versa, that's not going to make a big difference. Where it matters is when you have a very, very low uh, page speed. So something that came out of this interview is that um, page speed really, we should be looking at it from the user's experience. Uh, according to this interview, Eric said that 53% um, of sessions are abandoned if it takes more than three seconds for a page to load. If you think about that, like we're very, very un impatient when it comes to searching the web. Uh, if I uh, open up a page and it looks like it's taking forever to load, I'll just go back to Google and open up another page. Unless I really, really, really want to see this content, I'm not going to sit and wait for ages and ages for content to load. And if lots of users are doing this with your website, this can translate into issues in terms of ranking. Um, Eric said that the same study that says that 53% of sessions are abandoned if it takes more than three seconds for the page to load, uh, also says that the average page takes 15 seconds to fully load. Now we've talked about ways that you can uh, determine what's causing your pages to load slowly. Uh, and, you know, getting into a full discussion on this goes well beyond what I can do in this podcast episode. Uh, but one thing that you can look at is webpagetest.org. It's totally free. You put in your URL and sometimes you have to wait a bit. There's usually a little bit of a queue because it's a very popular tool. Lots of people are using it. Uh, and generally after a few minutes, sometimes it can take like even up to an hour or so, 
you'll get a result that shows you this thing called a waterfall. And the waterfall, it's very easy to see that like, okay, your page was loading fine. It was loading fine. Oh, and then this image wanted to be loaded onto the page and it slowed things down tremendously. And then, oh, the script started to load and it slowed things down even more. And you can look at this and start picking apart, do I really need this script on the page? A lot of the time what we see is, uh, for example, let's say you're using a WordPress theme and the WordPress theme uses JavaScript to open up some massive slider that can look really cool on your homepage. But what happens is often the WordPress theme will use this, uh, this code on every single page, even though you don't have the slider on that page. And so you could be loading in a whole bunch of code that takes a few seconds to load, uh, that's not even necessary. So now I believe our some of our very early episodes of newsletter, uh, like episodes one through five or so, we did like a, um, a whole series on improving page speed. And, and my goal to do that was to kind of write it in ways that everybody would understand. Um, you know, and so I was learning stuff on PageSpeed. I shared that with you. And uh, if you are a, a premium subscriber of newsletter, you have access to all 143 episodes. So uh, you should be able to find that if you're looking to speed up your site. Um, there's more on uh, PageSpeed and what we pulled out of this interview. Again, you can find that in newsletter. You know, I think I will talk a little bit about newsletter. I mentioned last week that we're opening up uh, to the idea of potentially taking a sponsor for our podcast. And I know this is a little bit of a, a bone of contention because you don't want to sit here and be advertised to. Um, but uh, we think we've got a sponsor that you're going to really, really enjoy. And I'm going to give you more information on that next week. Um, when I mentioned sponsorship, I had several of you reach out saying you would like to sponsor podcast or newsletter. And I really thank you for that. At this point, we're going to limit it to tools or products that we are already actively using. Um, and maybe in the future, we'll open it up to uh, other people who want to pitch products to us. But for this episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit about why it would make sense to subscribe to our premium version of newsletter. Again, if you don't want to listen to this, just skip ahead a couple minutes. I won't be offended if you just want to hear the news. Um, we have two different versions of our newsletter. You can find it at mariehaines.com newsletter. And uh, again, we have 143 episodes when I first started my newsletter, it was simply a way to keep people updated when the Penguin algorithm updated. Uh, those of you who have been in SEO for a while will probably remember that we would often go months and at one point years uh, in between Penguin updates. And so my newsletter initially was a way for me to just say, hey, I'll send you an email when Penguin updates. And then we added in information about Panda as well. And then every time Google did an update, I would write down my thoughts on what I saw, what the SEO community was seeing, not just me. Uh, and then we, I would include that in the newsletter as well. Now, fast forward to today, we have a staff of 10 currently at MHC, and every single one of us is involved in uh, not just gathering information for newsletter, uh, but, but uh, writing it up as well. And our goal is always to find things that we can say, you know what? we could use this to improve our quality of our clients' websites. Uh, and so if somebody tweets something that we think we could turn into a, an actionable tip, if we read something from a Google Help Hangout, we have four Google Docs filled to the brim 
with uh, notes from Google Help Hangouts. And so we're sharing all of this, these things with you each week. We have two versions of our newsletter. The free version uh, will tell you the, the stuff that Google uh, has already told us. If you follow um, Google's search liaison and uh, you know do a general reading of Search Engine Roundtable, you'll get sort of the same things that we have in the free version of our newsletter. Um, if you want more, though, the paid version is $18 US per month. And every time I go to conferences, I love when you guys come up to me and say, like, oh, I've been subscribing to your newsletter. Thanks for all the tips. And the one thing that I hear over and over again is that it's worth way more than $18 a month. So uh, it's very hard for me to do this pitch of my own product. Um, I really would like you to just see it for yourself and uh, hopefully find that it's worth the cost as well. If you're interested in signing up for a newsletter, again, mariehaines.com slash newsletter. Um, we have had some people ask about whether they could pay for one year at a time. I know a lot of businesses like to do that. And uh, if you reach out to us at help at mariehaines.com, we can set that up for you as well. Moving right along, let's talk about something that is in our newsletter. Um, I want to talk about something we pulled out of a uh, Google, Google Help Hangout recently, and it was John Mueller giving some tips for websites that have user-generated content. Um, and so uh, the most common area that we're talking about here is forum websites. So if you have a part of your website or even your entire website, if it's a forum, you're relying a lot on user-generated content. And this can be really challenging because UGC can be amazing in Google's eyes, but it can also be really bad as well. Um, there was a question that was asked in this a recent Google Help Hangout uh, about the fact that somebody created a forum and then people were coming along and uh, and signing up by the thousands. Now, this is a sign. If you start a new forum and all of a sudden you have a thousand users and they're all contributing, it's probably because you're allowing people to leave links. And what will happen is um, there's uh, spammers have software that will just find footprints to say, ah, here's a new forum on the web, and oh, it seems like you can link from it. And so they'll uh, create some gibberish or create some sort of automated post to leave a, uh, a post on your forum and also leave a link to a website that they're trying to rank. Now, um, Google has said many times, and I really do believe them, that this type of link, they're very good at ignoring. This type of link is not a recommendation. In the past, I think Google's algorithms could be tricked into saying, you know what, this forum is recommending this particular casino website. Maybe we should consider this casino website as higher quality. And now Google's pretty good at figuring out like, oh, that random signature uh, link that you dropped there is probably not a recommendation for your forum. So first thing is, if you have a forum and you are being overrun with user-generated content because of spammers who are trying to drop links, then um, one thing you can do is no-index profile pages. Uh, most forums have a place where you can leave a profile and leave a link to your, um, you can create a profile, leave a link to your website, and uh, most spamming software that drops links can find that and very easily create a profile. Uh, you really want to no-index those pages because nobody wants to land on that from search. Um, with that said, though, John also said, and I'll quote him, I wouldn't say that you need to urgently worry about, uh, and he's saying about um, dealing with these unnatural links, or these unnatural links, these links that people have dropped, because we see it all the time and we can usually deal with that fairly well, is his quote. But he went on to say, 
Quote, our algorithms could learn to ignore those links, and essentially it's something that automatically happens. We see a lot of user-generated links on a site. We probably think that the webmaster isn't aware of what's actually happening here, and we'll just ignore those to kind of be on the safe side. And that might end up with us ignoring the other links on your side as well, which is probably not what you want. Now, this is interesting because if Google decides to ignore all of the outbound links coming from your website, is this something that could impact the quality of your website? I don't know. The way I look at it, if Google has determined that a whole section of your website is not to be trusted in terms of linking out, then I can't see how that can be good. <laughs> you know, if Google has decided that you've got unnatural links coming out from your website, so really, really, we're just going to ignore this in terms of the whole infrastructure of uh, linking uh, amongst websites, that's not a good thing. You, you don't want to have that. Um, and so what can you do? There's loads of advice, again, uh, that um, it's in newsletter. It's also, I've tweeted about this, too, so you can, uh, you can find it, too, if you uh, uh, don't want to take notes. But uh, here's one thing you can do is um, create an algorithm. And we had a client that did this with a very simple PHP script that uh, determines which content to index. And you might decide to only index posts that have a certain number of thumbs up or uh, maybe no index posts that have thumbs down. Um, the point that we're trying to make here, though, is that it is very, very important that if you have low-quality content on your website, that you're not allowing all of that content to get indexed because it can cause Google to look at your entire site in a bit of a negative light. Uh, and we've had good results with helping clients clean up forums. Uh, I can think of several uh, situations uh, that we really want to write up as case studies uh, where we trimmed out tremendously thin content in forums and with a subsequent update, uh, those websites usually see nice improvements in rankings uh, across the board, not just for the forum. So that's, uh, that's exciting when that type of thing happens. In local SEO this week, there's not so much going on in terms of uh, ranking shifts. I don't think we've had any major local uh, ranking updates uh, recently. Um, we did uh, get notification from Colin Nielsen from Sterling Sky that it looks like there's more categories available for local service ads. If you have seen these, uh, you know, there's something that uh, gives you, again, some real estate really high up in the SERPs. And um, now there are some new categories of available if you are an architect, a lawyer, a tax specialist, or a videographer. Apparently, you can now qualify for Google-screened local service ads. Um, it's a little bit buggy. Uh, we've linked to uh, an article um, that uh, talks about how to get these categories, but apparently it's, it's a little bit buggy. So uh, you may have some trouble if you're trying to sign up for this. It seems like it's a fairly new thing. We've also talked in newsletter about, uh, we heard, uh, we saw a bit of an uptick in chatter in terms of uh, Google My Business suspensions. It looks like a number of people have seen suspensions at the account level, which is very interesting that Google can sometimes determine that uh, if you're monitoring, if you're managing a large number of accounts and all of these accounts are breaking the rules, breaking their terms of service. Maybe you're stuffing keywords into the title tag. Maybe you're, um, you know, there's many, many things that uh, you could be doing to break Google's terms of service in terms of Google My Business. You might find that 
all of your accounts get suspended. And uh, these suspensions can be very tricky to deal with. So uh, just another reminder to try to do things above board. It's very, it's very challenging. You know, when something happens and you do something and you're like, oh, this improved rankings immediately, but you kind of know that you wouldn't want the web spam team to see it. Um, it's very, very hard to go down the right road after that starts happening. So in every decision that you make in SEO, really be thinking, all right, this works, but would I be happy showing this to Google? You know, I have a lot of people ask me if when the people outside of our industry, when they say, oh, you do SEO, like you're helping websites to game Google, Google must hate you. And I don't think that's the case. I, I think that Google likes SEOs that help people to produce good content and help people to make better websites that the, the world is going to engage with more. I, I think that Google actually likes that type of thing. Um, and so as long as we're staying within Google's guidelines, then I feel like we're on the right track. But sometimes those guidelines, they can be a little bit gray. And I, I know it's, it's challenging sometimes to stay on the right side. Um, I want to couple uh, answer a couple of questions. If you have a question for me to answer, I don't claim to know everything in SEO, but I've been doing this for quite a few years, and um, and uh, there are certain topics that I feel like I can uh, hopefully provide you with a good answer with. Uh, I've got two questions today. If you want to leave me a question, there's two ways you can do that. One is through our newsletter, and uh, there's a Google form that you can fill out, and uh, you can decide whether you want to be anonymous or not, and leave the question. I can't guarantee that we'll answer it. But if it's one that I feel like I have a good answer for, then yes, we will. And then the other way that you can ask me a question is uh, by tweeting at the MHC underscore Inc. Twitter account. And uh, if you say question for podcast, that'll get on my radar and we'll uh, consider it for a future episode. So here's the question. Our site received a manual action for unnatural inbound links on some pages. After the ensuing backlink audit, our third reconsideration request was finally accepted. But now we have a disavow con file containing thousands of domains and URLs. We're worried that we might have overdone it as our rankings have been slipping since the May core update. Do you know of a way to check a very long list of domains for domain authority or other relevant metric to determine if we accidentally disavowed valuable domains? Thanks for all your great content. Really love the show. Thank you for the, the nice uh, response. I don't know if you'll still really love the show after I answer this question. <laughs> There's no really easy, quick way to do this. Uh, and we see this all the time. We've worked with a lot of the websites. When we do manual actions, uh, a lot of the websites that we work with are websites that have been through many requests with multiple SEO agencies. And we'll, I've seen many different types of disavow files, uh, completely disorganized ones, disavow files that are completely in the wrong format. Um, you know, if there's a mistake you can make with your disavow file, we've probably seen it. Uh, and we have seen several cases of sites that have disavow files that are too big. I'm not sure if you know, but there is actually a limit of uh, two megabytes on the disavow file. And if you um, go over that limit, you won't be able to upload your disavow file. Uh, Google won't accept it. So what do you do in that case? I'll tell you, it's rare that you need a, a disavow file that big. I can think of two clients out of all of the hundreds of disavows that I've filed. I think I have two clients that we actually reached that limit. And in both cases, uh, 
they were sites that also added in a whole bunch of uh, URLs to disavow that we hadn't recommended disavowing. Um, so really, when you're disavowing your links, if you had a manual action or if you have um, issues with an update that you think was link related and, and you're trying to file a, a disavow so that algorithmically Google is more likely to trust your links. If you're disavowing links, the links that you need to disavow are the ones that you made <laughs> for the most part. And a lot of people don't get this. Like people are going through trying to disavow all of these ultra spammy links from, you know, wallpaper image sites or just these random, the globe.net, the globe.org, the globe.whatever that links out to pretty much every website. We do throw those in disavow files because, hey, why not? I mean, it's not like those links were actually helping you. Um, and there was a day years ago in an older version of Penguin where we would say, look, we think that having a crazy number of super spammy uh, links pointing to your website could be a negative in Google's eyes. I feel very strongly now that that type of ultra spammy link, Google's just ignoring. So you could remove those types of links. But here's the problem is they're, they're I'm from your disavow file, but the problem is they're hard to find. So one thing that I see people always want to do is they want to disavow based on a metric like domain authority, which is from Moz, uh, domain rank from Ahrefs, or, uh, you know, I've seen people in the past disavow based on page rank. I had one site that came to me that disavowed all of their links based on toolbar page rank, not knowing that Google took away toolbar page rank and every single link that they put into this tool to tell them what to disavow uh, came back as page rank zero. And so they disavowed every single link <laughs> to their website and it did not go well for them. You, you really don't want to be basing your disavows on arbitrary metrics. Um, you know, and I see people saying, well, we're going to disavow everything that's below a uh, domain authority of 10. The problem is that most of the links that are causing your manual action are the ones that were actually moving the needle before. And so if you did like rampant guest posting across authoritative websites or across private blog networks uh, where people have worked to artificially build up the page rank of those pages. You're going to miss all those if you try to just disavow all of the low DA sites. Those are the ultra spammy ones, which probably I would lean more towards removing those from your disavow file if you had to remove anything. Um, one thing you can do is do a crawl with a tool like Screaming Frog uh, to find all of the links, uh, all of the domains or links in your disavow file that uh, no longer resolve. And you can remove those. John Mueller has told us that if a link is not in, if a page is not in Google's index, then that link is not counted in their algorithms. Um, the problem though, is that all, often pages will come in and out of the index. And it's not uncommon for us to do a screaming frog crawl and find like, oh, there's a hundred URLs that are in our disavow that no, you know, now they're 404 pages. And so we're going to remove those from our disavow. And then we go crawl those again. And like 25 of those suddenly resolve again. Um, so you really need to be careful again, if you're using certain metrics, but it could be a way that you could find, I think what I would do is, and we did this for one client, um, is find all of the uh, non 200s basically uh, to remove from your uh, from your disavow file, and then repeatedly crawl those URLs uh, to make sure that they haven't popped back again. That's a whole lot of work though to continue to do that. What we do at MHC is we do everything. Sadly, we do most of it manually. 
Uh, I mean, we have tools that we use to put our spreadsheet together for us. And then we go through the spreadsheet and uh, we look at one link from every linking domain and go, really, is this something that the Google, a Google Web Spam team member would consider to be against Google's guidelines? Not like, is this some ultra spammy foreign language, you know, some Asian site scraped Alexa and now is linking uh, to your website. Like, don't worry about those. Uh, you're really trying to find links that Google would consider um, manipulative of their algorithms. And also, and here's the tricky part, scraped versions of those links. If you had a link, let's say you paid for a link in a major publication and it was uh, like a keyword anchored paid link that would go against Google's guidelines, then um, if that version of that article got scraped and published on hundreds of websites across the web, we've seen Google Google give those as examples of unnatural links. And so you would need to disavow those as well. And it's really challenging to find those using a tool. Now I have seen some of the tools like the link detox and the um, cognitive uh, SEO. And there's, there's other tools out there that can be really helpful in helping you find these patterns, but I would not rely one bit on their decision-making uh, in terms of whether or not to disavow these links because they're relying on metrics that they've just made up. <laughs> and all, honestly, all that Google has told us is that if a link is uh, against Google's guidelines, if it's a link that you made for SEO purposes, those are the ones that are causing the problem. Uh, one thing I would recommend to you is just see, this might sound obvious, but see if you have a list of links that you made for SEO, a lot of uh, SEO companies, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll come to us and they'll say, hey, our last company gave us this spreadsheet of 500 uh, links that they built for us. And uh, usually we'll go through that spreadsheet and go, you know what, pretty much every single one of these is against Google's guidelines. And that's, that's, a, that's a tricky situation. But if you have lists, that can help you to trim down your disavow file as well. And the final piece of advice I'd give on this, I think I could probably go on about this for quite a bit more, but um, the final piece of advice I can give is to make sure you're disavowing on the domain level. Uh, a lot of the tools will go, hey, we found this link on, you know, example.com slash blah, 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 question mark this and, you know, hashtag this and, or hashbang this. And, uh, you know, if you're disavowing every single URL, uh, from a domain, that's a waste of time. Just disavow on the domain level, and that often greatly reduces the size of your disavow file. Um, do you want to remove the disavow file? No. Uh, I've talked about this in past episodes, but we've had we had one client that uh, we worked really hard to remove a manual action. And then uh, a little while after we worked with them, they reinstated um, a bunch of the links that we had removed. And, um, and then got another manual action, which was way harder to remove. So you don't want to be removing ones just hoping that Google never comes back and looks again. <laughs> I'll leave that there and we'll move on to our next question here. Uh, there's a great debate of dating your blog posts and articles or removing dates. I don't date my blog posts. I'm married. No, that was a really bad joke. In your SEO practice, have you tested if Google likes or dislikes this? And have you seen improvements with articles, blog posts, having dates or no dates? Um, I haven't personally tested it, but this sort of comes along the lines of uh, that answer that Google gives for almost everything is what would users like to see? 
Um, in most cases, when I'm reading an article, I want to know if it's something that was recently written. The Google's Quality Raters Guidelines, they talk a lot about uh, YMYL content, so your money or your life, that it needs to be kept up to date in most cases. So if I was put on a new medication, um, you know, I don't want to read this article from 2001 that tells me all of the potential side effects because there's probably been a lot of research done in the last 20 years uh, to tell me uh, better information. You know, that's very important that I don't want to be having dated information for that. But who knows? Maybe if there's you have an article on how to grow tomatoes, maybe not much has changed in the last 20 years. Although, what I would do in that situation is look and see uh, who's currently ranking. And do they have information that is way better than mine in terms of being more up-to-date? In which case, I would you know, want to see more up-to-date information. Um, the Quality Raiders Guidelines, they talk about... They tell their raters how to check and see, like, be careful. Uh, the date might say it was recently updated, but the content may not have been updated. You really can't trick Google into saying, like, oh, yeah, yeah, this was recently updated just last month uh, when nothing has actually changed. You know, Google's pretty good at figuring out whether you actually updated your content. To answer this question, and I think the thing is, I can't really think of a good reason not to have a date on your content. And I think the only reason why this comes up as a debate is that it's it's kind of a lazy thing. Like, I have an article that I, we linked to from newsletter um, that I wrote on uh, all the different things that could be contributing to a traffic drop. So if you thought you had a Google penalty on your website, uh, here's a list of a whole bunch of different things that could contribute. And um, the thing was, I wrote that in 2014. Now, I could just change the date on that. Most of the information is still very, very relevant, but it's old now. It's six years old. Um, and so uh, I could just change the date on that, but does that make it current content? Um, you know, and so I think the reasons to not put a date would be to just hope that somebody doesn't recognize that this is six years old. And I don't really see another reason not to put a date on it. Um, so, I, you know, my answer would be, why not? There's really no negative into doing it um, other than uh, you're being forced to keep content updated, which, by the way, that's a, an article that I'm going to update uh, soon. I've got so much I want to write and, uh, and update, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, I think we're going to leave it there. I thought, the, you know, that was a very good, concise version of our newsletter. Um, there is much more in the print version, in the online version. Uh, you've got my, in that version, my thoughts on uh, Barry Schwartz wrote an interesting article uh, about what SEOs get wrong about Google updates. Uh, and uh, we've written some stuff in newsletter about how to tell whether your traffic losses are due to uh, a Google update or due to something else. Um, because sometimes people get it wrong. I'm not sure I completely agree with uh, Barry in this article, but that's okay. Um, uh, Google is going to be making some changes to the rich results testing tool. We've written about that. Bing Webmaster Tools has a really cool plugin that uh, you can use for WordPress sites that allows your posts to be instantly indexed, which is kind of cool. Saves Bing the, uh, uh, the resources of having to crawl your site all the time. They just, uh, you can tell them. We've got new content and Bing will index it. Um, and we've got uh, an interesting discussion on criteria to use to determine when you should have multiple product pages versus just like one. You know, should I have a separate page for small, medium, and large or for different color variations? That's always a, a tricky uh, topic to talk about. 
The rest of this week is going to be more of an administrative week for me. I'm working on a lot of uh, things improving the business in MHC. We've got such a great team here, um, and there's always stuff to work on for improving. So, uh, so that's my focus for the rest of the week. But I will be on Twitter. I'll be keeping up with the news. And um, if you found something interesting in this newsletter, I'd love for you to reach out and tweet at me, uh, Marie underscore Haynes. Wherever you are, I really thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, your kind words whenever you tweet at me about podcast are always, always appreciated. Keep striving to improve, and I wish you the best of luck with your rankings. <laughs> <laughs>